You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Please follow in your Bible today. I'm reading in Colossians chapter 1. Last week I came to this portion, which you might call the doctrinal trunk of this book. It's really the central proclamation about Christ around which the rest of the book is woven. I'll read again verses 15 through 17, but our look today will be to go on to verses 18 through 20 of Colossians 1. Listen to God's inerrant and holy word. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's word. About 20 years ago, my daily drive from my home back and forth to the church I served at that time took me through a beautiful area outside of Baltimore called the Green Spring Valley. It was just as pretty a place as the name makes it sound. I went by one particular house among many grand homes in that area that was probably, I would guess, a century old at the time that I'm thinking about. A large colonial house standing on a a big tract of maybe 10 acres or better surrounded by woods, a very beautiful setting for this old estate. I used to admire it. And one day, as I drove by, I noticed that a bulldozer had been at work just over to one side, maybe 50 yards to the right of the main driveway. A bulldozer had cut in a path going to the back of the acreage, and it appeared something was beginning to happen back there. And as I continued to pass over the days and weeks, I could see that indeed a a hole was dug, a foundation went in for something rather large-looking. And soon I was watching a house, a large one, being built here, not directly behind, but just off to one side and behind this this beautiful estate. And I thought this was a little strange, that the owner would want another house almost behind his, or, or that he would have wanted to sell off a lot and have something so close so that this new neighbor would be almost looking into his backyard. Well, after many months, I watched the home take form and finally be completed. I'm 
not an expert in these things, but I would guess then this is 20 years ago that it was a house that cost at least a couple million dollars. That's when a million dollars was worth something, you know. Uh, It was a big and grand house. And then one day I passed this site and I almost hit my brakes and stopped in amazement. Because in the few days that I guess I'd not gone by there, that first beautiful century-old house had been knocked down flat. It was gone. And suddenly I understood what was going on there. The owner of the estate was building himself a new home on the rear of his land and deciding to remove the old one. That never even occurred to me. I would have rather had the old one. But here was someone replacing older beauty with new, grand home, something that you wouldn't have even thought the person would need. I had made a short-sighted mistake that I believe many people might do similarly with God's glorious, present creation. As we look at the beauty of Lancaster County in a mid-early springtime, bursting with colors and green, we're so prone to think to ourselves every drive we take, how lovely this earth is, how wonderful this creation is. And yet we can so easily forget that God is planning an eternal new creation that our minds can't even glimpse, and that, in fact, the beginning work of that new creation has already started to grow and be planted within us, those whom Christ rules and reigns over as Lord and Savior. And one day, all the rest, Paul says all things three or four times in this text, all the rest of creation is going to spring forth in a completely new thing that God will have done through Christ. Now, last week we looked at the important passage of verses 15 to 17 where it is declared Jesus Christ is the full equal of God, the equal partner in the work of creation itself. And it is said there with no mistaking the meaning that the mysterious eternal God of Genesis 1 and the little baby born of Mary in Matthew 1 are the same person, that in Jesus Christ there was the fullness of God, the image of God, representing what we could visibly understand of the invisible God. And so on this great Lord Christ, the very universe hangs suspended because He made it. And everyone in His creation ought to give Him homage. Now we go on to verses 18 to 20, and here Paul asserts that Christ is furthermore the Lord of a new creation, both of individual believers and eventually of the whole cosmos. He redeems individuals through his church by resurrection power, but he's laying the foundations for a renewal of heaven and earth. And the twisted tragedy of the human fall that has touched all of us and everything about our planet is going to be put right again. This Lord who upholds the little electron spinning in its submicroscopic orbit 
intends that his resurrection will not only renew those who believe in him, but it will actually recreate the physical universe and remake it to God's glory in a stunning climax that will be brought at the end of time. And so there's two main points I'm going to make today in this text. Verse 18 encompasses the first and 19 and 20 the second. The first point in verse 18 is about Christ and God's new creation in believers. Christ is the head of his body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that when the original creation was affected and racked by the onset of human sin, God wasn't taken by surprise. Back when we studied Genesis, we saw that the Lord had an immediate response. Even in bringing his curse, his condemnation, he was already bringing the hope and promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman was going to trample on and crush the head of Satan, the enemy. And so he even there established the fact that it would be Christ who would be the champion, if you want to call him that, out of out of all of history for people in the Old Testament age and the New Testament age likewise who would look to him and be called his people. And the term his church applies even to the Old Testament to those who look to Christ in faith only vaguely understanding who it was that was going to come. Nevertheless, they were looking for God's Messiah. Centuries before Jesus was born, He was the head of his church, his Old Testament church and his New Testament church. Whether you were an Israelite or a Gentile, it was this historic Messiah. Whether you lived before him, while he was alive, or in our case, far after he is alive on earth, he is the head of his church. Now, that means, of course, that when we talk about church in Colossians 1.18, we're not talking about a building with a white steeple on top of it. We're talking about the human dimension, the human gathering of all those who are saved by faith in Christ from centuries past and present and future. It is spiritually reborn, recreated, remade people who are the center of the church. God in Christ is reclaiming and giving what the New Testament calls literally a new birth to these people. The Old Testament said he was taking out their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Same thing. That's the activity of Christ in building up his church. Ephesians 1.22 has parallel language to Colossians here when it says that God appointed Christ to be head over his body, the church. Here's this image that Paul uses in several other places of comparing the church to a body, a live body, and those in it as the various members. But unmistakably, Christ is the head. And so just as your brain controls the functions of your body, it controls the movement of your big toe, it controls the constant beating of your heart, you don't have to think about it, it's just controlling it. It controls your thyroid gland and all parts of, and functions of your body. The movement of your little finger is controlled by something going on right now in my brain. And the same for you. Jesus has this role in gathering up 
his living body, in giving it birth, in guiding it, and sustaining it. He superintends his church. And every little hiccup that happens to his church, especially any shriek of pain or any shout of joy, he sees it, and he is in charge of it, and he is in control of his church. It's vital. This may seem like like such an elementary point, but it needs to be emphasized that Christ is the only head we look to in the church. You may know that we have in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, a man-made book. We call it the Book of Church Order. It's a loose-leaf notebook that is constantly getting perfected. I always tell the new members, look, this is not a loose-leaf book. It's not subject to change. The book of church order is loose leaf. It's man-made. It's constantly under revision as we take the Scripture and try to say, how do we run a local church? What are biblical principles of good order and leadership and so on that would help that church to grow and, and be unified? And so we have such a book, the book of church order. Well, this book is really asserting the king and headship of Christ over his church. Now, it fully acknowledges, of course, that the local church has elders, teaching elders, ruling elders, deacons, who do various things to lead the church, and how that works out is is spelled out there. But I've always been impressed that on the first page, right after the table of contents, this book of church order takes an entire page to set a doctrinal principle in place, and it is this, that Christ is the supreme and only head of his church. The pastor isn't the head. The session isn't the head. Christ is the head. It makes it clear that anyone who leads by his appointment is only a subordinate shepherd serving the one great shepherd. And I like the language that it states there. I quote one sentence. It says, Jesus, the mediator the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church contains in himself all the offices necessary to rule over his people. That means that anything any subordinate secondary shepherd does is only by the power and at the direction of the supreme head of the church. Now, this kind of language and and comparison of the church to a body with Christ as its head should lift our thinking so that we aren't just talking about a human social club or something like a neighborhood association that might be in your subdivision where you live with dues and and regulations about what you can do to your house or a club that you would join, a fraternal order. In the wide-angle perspective, the church isn't any of these things. It is a society of Christ, a living organism of Christ, and it pulses with the life of Christ at its head. God the Son and God the Father brought the church into being. And as we get the longest-range perspective, you were placed in his church not simply because you thought, oh, I think I'll join that club down there on Oregon Pike with the, the big white steeple, interesting group of people. I think I'd like to be part of that. Well, Sure, there's a human decision made, but that isn't the ultimate or even the most important thing. God made a decision to incorporate you into his living body, the church. 
And the Scripture says he made that decision from the foundation of the world, choosing his beloved people in Jesus Christ. It's marvelous. It's mysterious. We don't understand this thing. But nevertheless, it's clear who the king and ruler and head of the church is. Now, just as our physical bodies need to be kept alive by various vital functions going on, your heart beating and oxygen being drawn in and carbon dioxide being expelled and so on, Colossians 1.18 at least implies that there is something vital that brings energy to sustain the universal church, and that is the resurrection of Christ. You say, where's that? It's there because he's called the firstborn from among the dead. He was the firstborn over creation in the previous verses here, but now even more specifically, he leads the way in resurrection, in bringing resurrection as the power of God to make things new. You see, the chief negative result of the fall of mankind into sin was what? Death. The soul that sins, it dies. Well, if Christ is going to counteract the fall, he's going to have to counteract death. And that's why we so look forward to Easter Sunday, not just because of springtime and and flowers and things turning green, but because the great celebration triumph can be said, God has counteracted death. God has come out as a champion to fight against the fall, and he's actually defeated it. Its chief consequence, death, the inevitable death of our bodies and our souls, is turned around. God is able to give new life in the face of death. Chapter 213 of Colossians has Paul saying to Christians, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive with Christ. And so the cross atones for sin, but Easter resurrection lifts up the broken, dead believer, not just wounded, dead, lifts you from the battlefield of life and of your own sin and of all the tragedies of this world and puts a power of new life in you that does not merely touch what happens to you in this world, but the next as well. And so Colossians 1.18 implies that when the church looks to Jesus as its glorious head, it can expect to participate with him in resurrection from the dead, be vitalized by him, we can be governed by him, and we'll be used by him as his instrument here on earth, just as the brain controls the hand. We should be jealous for the honor of a supreme head of the church, such as Christ. He is the head of God's new creation, the church. Now, secondly, we go to verses 19 and 20. And look at the progression. Paul's ever the logical man. He's never illogical in the way he writes. Sometimes his sentences are long and complex, and you might lose your way, but he's logical. If you realize that in verses 15 to 17, he said Christ is Lord of the first creation because he was fully God and he was there and made it. And then in verse 18, he said Christ is Lord of a new creation, the church of living believers. Now he's going a logical step further and saying Christ is Lord of the ultimate recreation, the ultimate of what he will do in the creative realm is pointed to here. You see, all too often we think of 
the work of God and the work of Christ, and we say, well, what, what was he doing? What was the cross about? What was the resurrection? Oh, well, he was saving sinners. He was dying for our sins and giving me new life so I could have eternal life. Well, that's right. Of course it's right. But you've only interpreted it at the individual level. Paul here is interpreting it in the widest possible way with a very broad brush. He says this, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. He reconciled all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is, by the way, the fourth time he used the word all things since verse 15. If you have occasion to go to the new Gettysburg Battlefield Visitor Center, and I urge you to do that, it's dramatically different than it was for many years. You will be able to see there something you may have seen in the past, the restored and remounted cyclorama painting done by a gentleman in the late 19th century. Just a stunning piece of work. I could stand and look at it for an hour. By the way, they only allow you about 10 minutes and they shuttle you right on out again. But anyway, it's certainly worth going. You stand in this circular room surrounded by 360 degrees of a vast battlefield. And you can see troops charging in from one direction and men marching in from another direction. And up in the foreground is somebody bayoneting somebody else. And over here is a whole battery of cannon. Man, you feel like you're on that battlefield. You've got the big view of what's going on. Well, I like to feel in these couple of verses here, Paul is giving you a cyclorama view of God's work of recreation, his new creation over which Christ is Lord. Because even the natural order of things is going to be remade. It is not going to be for all time enslaved to Satan and death. In fact, it's not enslaved to him now, even though much remaining tragedy. We always we like to use this image, and it's an accurate one of the Scripture. The idea of a battle being fully decided. Many would say the Civil War was decided the day at Gettysburg, but there was sure a lot of bloody fighting afterwards until they really got it all worked out and one side laid down its arms. Well, the battle of sin and death is decided. There's no question about that whatsoever. And yet the aftermath struggle is still going on. The full payment to decide it was made at the cross. You know how you know you can either pay cash for something or you can go and put a down payment and then pay it out every month. Well, there's no monthly payment required from God for the final outcome of the new creation. The blood of Christ was payment in full. And so God wanted his, the audience of Paul here in Colossae, this little town, this little church, to understand and affirm that Christ is the supreme person who ever lived. One of the issues they were struggling with was whether Christ was just one heavenly being among many others. That there was kind of a, a motley crew, you might call them, of you know, princes and unseen thrones and angels and archangels, and you had to have that all figured out, and you had to maybe have a relationship in prayer to all of these various beings, and if you prayed the right way to the right beings, your prayers would reach God. Well, as you know, there are remnants of that false teaching that are sure alive today. There are people who revere saints or 
martyrs, and we're saints, so I don't know why any other saint gets prayed to. And they come and think, well, this great person, this great heroic individual had such great holiness about him. I'll just pray to him. And, of course, many are taught to pray to Mary, who is honored in the Scripture, but not honored in the way some would intend her to be. She's called in some teaching the mediatrix, the one who mediates between us and her son. The son doesn't need a mediator. And the Scripture certainly does not teach that Mary stands in that position to receive our prayers as someone we must go to aside from the Son. The emphasis here is that God made Jesus Christ as the one unique vessel of His perfect divinity who combined with that a perfect humanity. And therefore, He qualified for what Paul later said in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God. And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. Here's what we can say on the basis of this passage, and we say it with all affirmation of the Scripture behind us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate. No one like him precedes him. No one like him is beside him or expected to come after him. And anything less than the Christ of God, whom Paul preached, will not suffice to pay the price of eternal redemption. Paying more than he did is a folly, because everything of God is found in Christ, and nothing of God can be known apart from Christ. Now, there's a little bit of a a tussle at verse 20 when it declares there that God is reconciling all things to himself. There are liberal scholars who like to pounce on this passage, and they say, aha, look here. God is reconciling all things to himself. I believe this must prove universal salvation. In other words, in the end of time, it doesn't matter. Every person's going to be saved because all things are going to be reconciled, and therefore everybody will be saved the same as everybody else, regardless of their faith, regardless of what they did in this world with Christ. You You evangelicals who say, you know, come to Jesus, surrender him as Lord, you don't have the whole truth. Every Muslim is going to be saved. Every Hindu is going to be saved because God's going to reconcile all things. Well, we know that's wrong. And we know it's wrong for two reasons. Number one, you'd have to tear out about 50 to 100 pages from your Bible that teach otherwise and that would be completely contrary to that and say, you must come to God through Christ and there's no other way. But number two, it's, it's a misuse of the understanding of all things right within this passage. As I've said, Paul's already said it in verse 16. He was talking about all things that were created in heaven or earth. He repeats it again at the end of 16. And then the beginning of 17, he's before all things. He has a very big idea there, not just people, but planets and star systems and all life. All things does not mean that simplistic idea of people all somehow having the same salvation. It means the entire panoply, the entire array of everything God has made is not outside his ability to remake it. I love spring in Lancaster County. I'm sure you do too. 
where I come from many years ago, I never knew what spring was. You know, you woke up somewhere around July 4th and said, oh, look at that, a flower. You know, the this, this snowbank was still receding. There was this kind of muddy time in April and May, but it, it didn't look anything like it does here. Well, wonderful as the glimpse we have, even looking out these windows and driving around today, is of the, the earth and its fullness and its beauty in this place. You know, every spring is sort of a, a paradigm of what's going on as it seems like the natural world begins to fight off death again. Winter's over. Things are starting to bloom. Everything's green. Everything's alive and colorful. And, and our hearts sort of say, ah, great, life. I just love life. But don't we know that at least barring a catastrophe, there will be an autumn and there will be a winter, and every flower in your yard will die, and every tree's leaves will fall, except the evergreens, of course. But the appearances of death will come, and it will appear in our natural world as if in this cycle, death always wins. Life comes forth, and it dies. And we say, well, that's just the way it is. No, that isn't the way it is. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, we read that the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its choice, but by the curse on universal sin, by the thorns and the thistles that came forth in Genesis, by this planetary ecological crisis that we talk about all the time now. But Romans eight twenty one diagnosed it and said, look what's going to happen. Creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You see how that coincides with what we got here? God is doing his recreation first through his church, the children of God, making us new, making us ready to be his people in eternity. But what he's doing in us and through us has a wider ring around it because he's going to bring newness and change to the whole universal order of things when Christ finally appears. There are hints all over the prophets about this. I have no time to go after any of them. Just, just one, Isaiah chapter 11, that passage you may know that, that pictures something so idyllic sounding where it says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the calf will lay down beside the young lion. What's that talking about? It's talking about the recreation. It's a symbol of the recreation. In that passage, Isaiah 11:9 concludes to say, They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth then shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That's God's destination. That's where he's going with creation, with what sometimes is simply called the regeneration, the recreation that will happen at Christ's final coming when he inaugurates a new heaven and a new earth where sin will not intrude and death will not exist. And God's people will dwell in perfect harmony and joy with their Savior. That's not a pipe dream. That's not what some foolish critics call pie in the sky by and by. That's the work of God and the promise of God. And we are confident that it will happen because Colossians 1.20 says, Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. He made shalom. He restored the harmony of the universe. 
what was broken, what was fractured by human sin has been put back together by the shed blood of Christ. Now, when we talk about bloodshed on this earth accomplishing something, it rarely does. You know, I go by a couple of yards where I drive around. One has had a sign in the yard ever since the election. It says, war is not the answer. Obviously, that person wants to have a discussion with the world about things. Well, he's kind of right because war rarely is a resolution of much of anything. I'm not going to go into that whole point, but most bloodshed of man against man just brings more bloodshed, right? Until you can somehow negotiate a peace, but it's always an uneasy thing after bloodshed. But the blood of Christ is blood that actually bought peace. It bought reconciliation of all the broken fragments that the fall introduced to the human world and the created order. An author named Eugene Peterson has it in a couple of sentences. Here's what he said. All the broken, dislocated pieces of the universe and of your life, people and planets, animals and atoms, will get properly fixed and assembled again in the vibrant harmonies of God because of Christ's death and that precious blood he spilled on his cross. Folks, this wonderful passage of Colossians is such a good one to be looking at on Palm Sunday. Jesus Christ is the ultimate. Nobody precedes him. Nobody stands beside him. Nobody will ever succeed him. Everything of God is to be found in Christ, and nothing of God can be known apart from Christ. And the question to his church and to all men and women today is, are you giving this king the preeminence in your life, in your everyday decisions, in the basic anxiety or lack of anxiety you have about your present circumstances? Are you saying Christ is ruling? Christ is engineering even my present life, difficult as this thing may be that's come upon me? If you're saying that, you should be able to find his peace leaking in around the edges of your anxiety and giving rest to your soul and especially giving you hope for that last and final day when he will rule visibly and without a rival and without even a sign of his enemy's work being left anymore. You know, we have so many threats as we think about this recession and its global involvement. One fellow said recently, a Christian writer said, if this planet of ours actually is headed for an economic meltdown, there is a sense in which every Christian should be able to say, let it come and let it die. Because we know the chapter that comes after this world dies is the best. It's the glorified ending that God in Christ has appointed for us. And so Christ in you, believer, is the hope of glory. 
soon to be revealed to all eyes. You should be able to say, no matter how much you love this world or you love springtime or you love your family or your job or anything else, you should be able to say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come and bring this great thing to pass. Our Father, may we be people of that hope Not people useless to this world because our head is in the clouds, but useful to the world because we know where the world's going. We know who it's run by, and we know who its planner and superintendent and king is. Lord Jesus, come in your glory. Come in the lives of your people. Be displayed for your endless praise. Amen. As we sing the final hymn, let's sing verses 1, 3, and 5, please. 1, 3, and 5 only.